I'm Jana Marin, and you're listening to Season 2 of More to the Story, the podcast that's all about creative nonfiction and the power of sharing your personal story. Tell me a story, tell me truth, I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue, tell me a story and I I'll tell mine to you. Welcome to season two, episode 12 of More to the Story, a show that is all about something near and dear to my heart, telling true stories and sharing them with the world. In addition to this podcast, I also publish a literary magazine called Under the Gum Tree, which is dedicated to creative nonfiction and visual art. The magazine is published quarterly in digital and print. If you enjoy the readings on this show, I encourage you to check out the complete stories by purchasing a single issue or getting a subscription. Your purchase directly supports the work of the writers and artists we publish. Digital subscriptions are $2 a month and print subscriptions are $7 a month. All that info is online at underthegumtree.com. On today's episode of More to the Story, I'm joined by Yadon Israel, one of Under the Gumtree's previous contributors. Yadon is a 27-year-old writer from Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, who has written for Avidly, The New Inquiry, Brooklyn Magazine, Lit Hub, and Poets and Writers. He graduated from the MFA Creative Nonfiction Writing Program at The New School. He is the awards and membership VP of the National Book Critics Circle. He runs a popular Instagram page which promotes literature and fashion under the hashtag literary swag, and he's the host of a web show for writers called Lit. Before we get to the interview, here is Yadon reading from his essay titled Coming to America. Essay is called Coming to America. While my father was still around, he and my mother revered all things African. Kente cloth covered and protected our bodies like saran wrap. My parents didn't like Dove. Irish Spring, and Leva 2000 suggestion that soap should be white or light pastel. Cleanliness was next to godliness, and since God was black, our soap was black too. Glade plug-ins, Lysol air fresheners, perfumes, colognes, and lotions were for white people and those who wanted to be like them. We freshened our air with incense, scented our bodies with oils, and moisturized our skin with shea butter. We would have been Amish had we been white instead of black and lived in Lancaster County instead of Bed-Stuy. But seeing that I was black and living in Bed-Stuy, Rumspringer came earlier than expected. Although all things African had been exalted in my house, this was not the case for Project Kids at PS40, nor the best of the brightest at PSIS 308. It was at those places where I learned that there was a world's difference between how we're raised and how we grow up. Ugh, why are you dressed like that? Because I'm black? I'm black and I don't dress like that. Is you an African booty scratcher or something? An African booty scratcher? Yeah, an African booty scratcher. You know... Africans always scratching their ass because they're dirty. Where'd you get this from? You know how on TV they always showing all them ashy-ass Africans starving and shit? What channel is this? Wait, you don't have cable? No, my mother... Damn! You don't wear regular clothes and you don't have cable? You must be African. My mother says we're all African. These kids treated Africa like an inside joke. All anyone would have to do is say Africa and everyone would click their tongues against the roof of their mouths and laugh. I would have shrugged it off had it only happened once, twice, or maybe even three times. But after months of insults stacked on my shoulders like poker chips, all bets were off. The odds were against me, and it was because, to them, I was African. From then on, all things having to do with Africa had to be forgotten. I no longer wanted to use the shape the black soap because, like it had been suggested at school, I could no longer tell if the soap had removed dirt 
or put it there. I began to hate incense because the ashes discolored the carpet and shea butter became suffocating. I had already began taking my brother's clothes while he was asleep, placing them in my book bag the morning after and changing into them before I got to school. The fact that my brother was 12 years older than me didn't matter. Better to reign an ill-fitting iceberg than in tailor-made Tanakas. I had almost forgotten everything. I was almost regular. I was almost black. And with the precision of a grandfather clock, life had decided it was the perfect time to marry my sister to a man from Ivory Coast to rest Africa. I am generally grateful for life's generosities, but this one was one of the rare occasions where I felt life had been a little too generous. I hadn't even become black long enough to take my shoes off, and here came this African man and his Air Max 95. Strangely enough, he didn't strike me as an African. He didn't wear dashiki, sandals, or kufis. He was draped in DKNY, Tommy Hilfiger, and polo. I didn't know what Prada was until I met him. He didn't even click his tongue. He spoke a language more sophisticated than the Queen's English. He spoke French. I wasn't sure which Africa my parents or classmates had in mind, but they both had it wrong. According to my mother, he respected his elders, something we American kids knew nothing about. He worked hard, another virtue which eluded us. And most importantly, he was really African, something we hadn't been for a long time. Although my family loved him, my mother especially, I had missed the boat. I was already semesters deep into hate in Africa, and I could not look back now. I was still in the process of forgetting, and although I didn't want any reminders, I kept getting them every time he visited. Who's that? Is that my son-in-law? Yes, ma, it's me. I brought you more shea butter and black soap. Thank you. I can't tell you where it all goes. I hit the tubs of shea butter and black soap under the sink behind shopping bags, along with incomplete homework packages, letters from teachers about these incomplete homework packages, and several attempts at forged notes promising something would be done about it. But no matter how hard I worked to forget out to, to forget about the um forget what I was hiding. So forget I was hiding the soap under the sink. His presence was something I always had to confront. But except for the few gestures of respect and deference to my parents, though he didn't talk much. But except for the few gestures of, of respect and deference to my parents, he didn't talk much. When I'd go to the Bronx to visit my sister on weekends, he was rarely there, and when he was, he slipped between French and English like a pillow in his case flipping it at whim to let us know that he wasn't to be slept on. He speak French to sugarcoat the shit he thought, flip to English to agree with our plain vanilla thoughts, then flip back to French to remind himself that he didn't like vanilla. My sister caught on and learned to speak French, picking up teeth sucking as part of her education to show him that shit had not, as, shit had not been as sweet as his French suggested. When he found out that she learned French, he flipped the whole mattress on her and spoke another language that he and probably eight other people in his family understood. There had been a disagreement between them while I was there one weekend. They shouted at their highest volume to each other in French. I couldn't understand anything being spoken, but I understood everything being said. It wasn't a matter of following the ball. It was a matter. It was about knowing the players. I knew what my sister. I knew that my sister was smarter than her husband. I also knew that she knew this, but I also knew that her husband thought little of women and nothing of their intelligence. Yet here he was losing a shouting match on his home court. He was embarrassed. After seeing how the French language had betrayed him. A bittersweet subtlety slipped from his lips like licorice. In plain vanilla English, he said, this is exactly why I shouldn't have married a black girl. What you say? You heard me. I was told to stay away from you black American girls because you're all niggers and it's true. Oh, so we're the niggers. We're the niggers, but you left Ivory Coast to come here. We're the niggers, but you wanted to marry me. We're the niggers, but you smile all over my mother's face talking about Africa when you could care less about it. I don't know what it is about y'all niggers that think y'all are better than us. But you're going to learn real soon about who's the nigga here, and it's not just us. There was nothing else for my sister's husband to do besides storm into the bedroom, grab his jacket, and bushwhack out of the house, swinging the front door so hard behind him, the bell and the peephole chimed. 
I looked at my sister who refused to look back at me. She went into her bedroom. I turned my eyes back to the television. Beneath the laugh tracks on Martin, I could hear my sister murmuring to herself like a Vietnam War veteran. I'm the nigga. Nigga must be bugged. No, you the nigga, nigga. And that's, I think, is that five minutes? Is that? Yeah, it's about five minutes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Yadon, and welcome to More to the Story. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you. Welcome to be, not, not happy to be here uh, via Skype. <laughs> Um, let's start off with just a little bit about you and your writing background. How did you start writing and specifically what draws you to creative nonfiction? Um, what started me writing? I think, uh, I think what started me writing was the, uh, ability to be listened to. Mm. And, um, I think the first time I had realized, I think the power of writing, I was in, a, I was in my fourth grade. And we were all told to write something uh, like we could write whatever we wanted. It was like a like a story we could we could make up. And I was like at this time uh, like a, a pathological liar. Like I was just always telling lies. Like I was always lying. And the thing, the reason why is because I always wanted to capture people's attention. But the truth, I realized people didn't want to listen to. People were always around my you know in my immediate life was more captivated by what wasn't than what was because what was was so limited and we already knew what was because there was so little of it the reality was so stark and so I was like I would always tell lies first to myself and then to other people because that's usually how it starts you got a lot of yourself first and I remember writing this story it was a short story I had made up and it was like about like Donkey Kong or whatever like the video game and I was just like riffing on the story and it was funny because when I was reading it I wasn't particularly like a popular kid at that time in my life but I'll never forget how quiet the room was. Um, and it was quiet in a way that wasn't like like bored or like annoying, but like everyone was like attentive and listening and people like laughed at the parts where I had written things that I thought was funny. And they were like, people were like, I was able to control them with the language that I had created by myself. And I was just like, whoa, that just really stuck with me. And so like, I always understood writing from that point as something that was powerful it was just that um in comparison to the many other things that had more power like music and sports and being like a little thug or whatever like like writing just receded it wasn't as urgent as the circumstances in my life was so like writing had took a a back seat until honestly like until I hit like I became like 1920 when I'm in college like so many years later and like writing was always like something you knew I knew how to do, like reading, right? Like people know how to read to like what's like they can read their bills, they can read their emails, they can read. But it's like, are they going to just read for the sake of reading? And no. And for me, I wasn't a writer until I was writing for the sake of writing. Like I wasn't writing to fill out an application or to do a cover letter. I was writing because this is how I began to understand the world. And that didn't happen. So like, I think I started to really understand that I didn't understand a lot of things. And writing became my way of processing the mm -hmm. complications of what I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Was there anything in particular that sort of triggered you to return to writing to process things? Um, I think one being in a environment like like college where like that becomes your main way of communicating, mm -hmm. right? Like you know, everything that we wrote. I mean, going to Pace University and like we would have conversations, but your homework, you know, you had to do a five page paper that became, you know, your battleground, you know, and right. the other part of it is like, that's a battleground that's recognized by other people 
in the class. Whereas like in your everyday, like if I get into like a, a fight with like one of my best friends, like I'm not going to take to writing him or her like a five page. Like that's not how people understand. <laughs> like, you know, like that's not the way like back, you know, you know, I don't know, like 16, like before emails and stuff. Yeah. You would write somebody a long letter or if you have a friend or family member, like upstate in, in prison, like a letter is like what you do when you don't have the luxury of talking to that person directly. Right. And the thing that like the difference between what college did for me is like, it gave me a place to constantly have to return to the page. It gave me a reason to do that. And I think that that was what like started to make writing very it became relevant to me because it was something I had to do. Sure. Whereas like, I think the reason why, you know, so many people don't read and, or don't like really value writing because they don't see like, how does this affect my everyday life? Right. Like it's not something that I confront the world with. A lot of people describe even reading as something that they use to get away from what's going on in the world, not somewhere they come to like confront the world. And so I've always seen writing and reading as a confrontation. Mm-hmm. And I don't go to the page until I'm ready to confront something. If I'm not mm-hmm. in that confrontational like phase, then I'm not writing. I'm sort of just living out, you know, what I, you know, just my life. So when you started to answer this question, you were talking about you used to tell lies. Yeah. So talk about the transformation from that to writing nonfiction, which from my perspective is about truth and finding the truth and sharing like the, the closest thing that we can find to our personal truth. Yeah. Um, well, I think one thing I think anyone who really lies knows is that all lies are predicated on a truth. Mm-hmm. Like any, 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 any lie that's believed has a truth in it, which is why people believe it. And what I always knew when I was lying was not, um, what I was lying about, but who I was lying to, because what I was telling the person is something that they wanted to hear, which is also something that like, there was something complicit in that person that believed the thing I was saying, even though there was no proof for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it, it behooved them to believe not what I was telling them, but what they wanted to believe anyway. And that, you know, I would just, you know, if, if it was my mother and I knew my mother, for example, took pride in the fact that her kid you know, my, you know, her kids were always doing well. So I was like, oh, yeah, my, I got an A on a test today. Because it was like, I knew that that's what she needed mm-hmm. to keep her own sense of semblance and, like, her lives going. And so, like, other people's lives skewed other people's lives. And I saw, like, what happened when you told the truth. Like, when, when, you, when I was honest or when I said something, I was always being reprimanded with that. Because it's funny, like, you get told, like, oh, be honest. But then when, you know, certain things are at stake, it's like, okay, don't, you can't say that. You can't say this. Don't do this. When company comes over blah, blah, blah. Like you got to clean the house when company comes over, but it's like, but it's not. So we have to put on all this. So it was like, all right, so I can lie on your terms, but not on mine. Right. There, you can only so, tell part of the truth. <laughs> yeah. And I can tell your truth. Like I can tell what's true for you, but I can't tell what's true for me. So if we went out somewhere and like, you know, there's a lot of growing up, especially being like living in like the American concept of poverty and your stomach is hurting. Someone offers you something like the pride, Oh, no, we're fine. And it's like, no, I'm hungry. But you can't say that because then you get popped in the mouth because it's like you're talking out of turn. And so lies in a lot of ways became my first, the first way that I was able to like, that was my first sort of confrontation with the world. And that's what like even that essay explores is like my parents were telling me a certain truth 
about being black, that I should be proud of it, that I should love it. But then I go into the world and this truth is being confronted with a greater truth of like, well, this truth is conditional to where I was in my house. But when I go to school, this truth isn't true. So now I feel like I was being lied to. And so for me, it was like lying was my way of getting even. Like you lie to me, I'm a lie to you. And, um, and I'm not saying that like, it's like, oh, this is like a noble cause, but it was like, that was the way I first took agency over language was I started to make it do what I wanted it to do. So, you know, like if my mother told me I couldn't go outside or I couldn't go to a friend's house, I would lie to my, my friend's mother and be like, my mother said I could be here. Cause that was the way that I was going to get back. Like, well, like I felt like I should be here. So it was one of those things. And I feel like my, like creative nonfiction, creative writing, right? When you think, when you really think about it, like there's no way that the dialogue that I put in my stories is a hundred percent fact. There's no way I remember word for word what someone said to me. And so I think nonfiction I think it's interesting that in nonfiction, there's a reason why fiction is still on the table in that mm-hmm. definition. Because I feel like even though it's like, it's not that it's, it's like, it's not fiction. It's like, it's nonfiction. Like the, the structures of it are still operating on something false, mm-hmm. which is memory, which is like, cause memory fails us. Memory is false. Like you might remember this, you collapse, we, our memory collapses. We, we put things on a wrong day. And so if it's not a hundred percent fact, it's false. And so for me, it's like what I'm trying to get to is the truth of what it felt like. Um, the, the, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, I'm trying to write to what was actually true. And um, I don't delude myself into thinking that I have the truth. I acknowledge that I have what, what, like what I felt was true. And I write from there. Um, and that's why like I was always suspicious of like when I wanted, when I first became got into being a writer and like I was doing like this literary criticism and like, you know, journalism and you always have to prove like you have to have this voice of objectivity, which is already itself a lie, right? Like, because it's like, if you're talking about an objective voice, but then you choose to leave something out, that choice is both political, it's personal. And it's the reason why I decided to report on this and not that, mm-hmm. or to tell this side of the story but not that side of the story even if i'm documenting all the details i'm not also documenting well what makes these details matter in context to what i'm talking about and so like you know i was like just learning that like anytime someone was professing that something was the truth that was the first lie like i like like when someone was telling me that this is all of the story then i was like nah this is not like this person is not someone to be trusted and i felt like the best way that that the way I started to gain people's trust was that I just admitted that I was lying. I put myself out there that I was a liar, right? Like I could have literally just told you, I didn't have to tell you that I was a pathological liar, but I feel like that sets equal footing because now your decision to believe me is not solely something like that's agency on your part to decide to believe what I'm telling you. But if I tell you and I go, you know, leaps and bounds to make you feel like I'm not a liar, I sort of remove your agency because I'm not allowing you to, you know, use what you know to be true in your own life and weigh it against my truth and go, well, this might not be true for me, but I can see that and I can see that. And that's really what I wanted. Like, I really want it to be listened to. I think that's what all liars want is to be listened to and be believed. And the more I became, the better my writing got, the more I became, the more I was able, the more people believe me, the less it became necessary to lie to people. Mm-hmm because I knew I had your ear, so I lie, mm-hmm. 
right? So mm-hmm. um, the older I've gotten and the better I've gotten at writing, the more honest my writing has gotten because mm-hmm. now I'm starting to see that you have the trust there. Mm-hmm. That I, I don't have to tell a, a grand, a big story because I could tell a small story, right? And when I first started writing, I was, t- I was writing like big, like tall tales, like um, and even in nonfiction, like, you know, one of my biggest influences in writing as a craft is like James Baldwin and his essays. And you read so many of, I've read, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say everything is ever written, but I've read, I've, like, if it's anything that's, like, public, in the public sphere, and it's an essay by James Bowen, I've, re- I've read them, and I've come to the conclusion that, like, his essays are, like, less honest than his fiction, which is very ironic. Like, he doesn't write an essay honestly about his sexuality to 1985. And he wrote Giovanni's Room in, like, 19, in the 1960s. And it's like, well, you know, how is it that he's more capable of being honest in this the pre like you know the the pretenses of fiction where we don't take it to be fact, but when it comes to writing about facts, he's you know he falls on the tropes of like writing about white and black, and you know answering white people's questions as opposed to like asking his own questions and like thinking about what the essay is as form. It's an attempt. You're trying something. You're not succeeding. But the way I learned how to write as a black person mainly because a lot of my editors were white that they were always expecting me to answer their questions. And Mm. I was supposed to take that on as like something that was my writing. And so it was like, there's a lot of ways in which my writing, like these, these sort of scaffolding, the structures that supported my writing was not allowing me to tell the truth in a lot of ways. Mm. And so, yeah, you can. I wanted to ask more about that question. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to go there and here we are. I'm a, I'm a white editor asking you mm-hmm. about your writing. Um, but later on in the essay, there's a part that you didn't read where you've got some white friends who are asking you permission to use the N-word. And yeah. you, you don't give it to them. You don't give it to them. Well, yeah. So, Is that the question? Or... No, that's not the question. The question is, one of the things that I do with questions is I I find that that's a tool for me to use to understand the experience of other people, the experiences that I right. don't have, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask for your perspective on when is a question genuinely asking for understanding and when is a question just ignorant? Um, I think the only person... I- I, the only person that can answer that is the person asking that question. I really feel. <laughs> yeah. Because if if you know that your question is sincere, um, that means you would have had to have done the work of interrogating yourself before you asked me anything. Yeah. Right. And I think a lot of times is people don't even work out their shit before they bring it to your doorstep because they want you to figure it out. Like it's your job to figure out my thing. And it's like I've realized, you know, in a you know, what's funny about you know, that essay is that it synthesizes, it distills a lot of experience, right? That's what writing does in general, right? You, you know, you have to live sometimes 10 years to get one sentence to work the right way because you need to feel that sentence to be able to go like, all right, this is what this has come to mean. I've had so many of those type of conversations with white friends who have asked me to solve their problems for them. And for a long time, because I thought that was my job to solve white people's problems, I was lying to them by even answering their question. Mm. Because what I was doing, regardless of what I was telling them in the answer, by even answering them, I was allowing them to believe that it was okay for someone else to solve their problem. 
as opposed to doing what I'm doing now is like, well, let me ask you something, right? And then it puts, so like, I'm going to continue to put your life in your hands. Like I'm not responsible for your life. And so with that situation where you have, where I have my friends asking me to give them permission to say the N word, it's like, why do you want my permission to, to speak? Like, You've never asked me to, you don't ask me to speak on anything else. It's not like, well, we go to eat and you go, can I have, can I, can I eat? You don't do that. But when it comes to this particular word, then I have all the power. And it's like, why do you feel like I have the power? And so what I've learned to do is like, literally like ask my own question, like not allow myself to turn into somebody else, like sort of like, I don't know like what the word is, but like someone's intellectual, like, uh, I don't know, like intellectual slave, like intellectual property. Like anytime I need you to explain this to me, I'm going to ask you for this. And it's like, no, you can solve that yourself. Because apparently if I've had this many, if I had this conversation with so many different white people who don't know each other, it's like, this is, this is something that that y'all got, like y'all have to figure out. Like, this is not (laughs) like, I don't have to figure this one out because I'm not the one with the problem. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, you know, anytime, you know, a lot of times when I talk to white people and it's like, oh, how can we do this? It's like, I'm not y'all, you know, like that's like me asking you as a like, you know, as a man, what can men do to make it safer for women? It's like that assumes that I as a man do not know how dangerous it is for women already. That assumes that I have I have never been in a room where I've never heard how women have talked about. That means that I have never even thought some of the sexist thoughts of it's like it's my way of saying I'm innocent. Right. I don't know anything that's ever how how like what can I do to stop catwalk? Like you've never seen it before, sir. Like you've never seen men like this is the first time you're hearing of it. And it's like once someone even asks the questions like that, it lets me know, like, once again, like you're lying. That question is a lie. Mm-hmm. Like you've you definitely had brushes up against this. And my question to you is, why have you never questioned the not questioning until now? Mm-hmm. Like you know, what is it about, like, I've, I've learned to stop, like, even growing, I've learned to understand white privilege, white power by understanding male privilege, right? And my own privilege as a male. Whereas, like, in a lot of ways, like, when I've had, like, women, women friends talk to me about, like, the things that they deal with on an everyday basis, my first response is not to listen, it's to defend. Well, I don't do that. And it's like no one's talking about you. Right. And it's no different than when you, if you talk about slavery and a white person goes, well, my parents didn't own slaves. And it's like, I wish the institution of slavery came down to what your parents believe was right and wrong. Unfortunately, this is bigger than you and your parents. And when you start to understand that power exists beyond your, your ability to hold it, then you start to become more responsible for the ways in which you enact it in little ways. And so with those conversations coming to me and me sort of challenging myself, like, well, why do I, why is it when my friend tells me this, my immediate defense is that, that's not her, like, she can't answer that. So it's like, now that I've understand, like, oh, like, I'm just because I'm not responsible for everything that happens in the world does not mean I'm not responsible for what I do in the world. And I think that once you see that those things are not the same thing, then your questions change. And that's when they become more sincere, because you stop sort of asking questions and people answer them if you listen enough. Like, you know, everything in that essay is like I'm telling you sort of like why the question is unnecessary because it's like if you are not racist and you are not these things, 
why like why is it why is that something you would want to say if you understand the history if you understand these things why is it something you want to say and that's why like i give the very comp my very complicated and emphasis on my very complicated history with the word is because it's a word rooted in loss and possession like this very, this conundrum and so to ask to be a part of this conundrum is to show tell to tell me by the question that you feel like you don't belong to which case i cannot make space for you in a place that I wasn't even asked to be a part of, right? Like the experience of losing my father and I explain, I go into length of like how that even happened. Like you have two parents who want to protect their kid from a world that no matter what they do, just immediately renders their own truths. Like my father being like the man of the house because we're on section eight welfare renders that whole truth that he would probably have for himself false. Like you can't pick up your kids from, from school. You can't sign your kids out. You can't, you don't have any say in their immunization. You have no say in what, they, like, can you really say that, like, that man's your father? Like, you know, he's my biological father, but when it comes out to acting out the duties of a father, in what ways is he allowed to occupy that space? And so if that's the way I learned that word, and you're about to ask me if you can use that word, it's like, you don't know nothing about this word. Thus, I can never answer that for you. Like, even if I said yes, you're, what you're hearing is now your Don gave me permission to do something with this other person. And so when someone else says it and it's like, oh, no, it's fine. Your Don said it's OK. It's like that person might not even like me. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Like I do like, you know, I cannot give you okay, like the OK. And so like one of the first things this essay does um, is it immediately puts um it puts up like the fact that like my first entrance into the country of America and I was born here or whatever, but my first understanding of living here is a lie. Right. It's predicated on a series of lies. And thus it's like, how do you even find the truth in that? Right. Is that you just have to go through the lies now. Like you just have to tell the lies the way they were told to you and figure out in it what was true about the lie. What was true about the lie of my mother and father, you know, telling me and their, you know, my sisters and the family I was a part of that we were black and we, it was that they wanted to, there's a truth of being proud of who you are and what you're from. Now what the, the, the like the, the lens to which they try to make it true is what shows the like, like look how the society posits that something should be true in certain cases, but isn't, but then this thing of white power can be true without questioning, right? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, the, the sense of my sister being married to her husband and, you know, him just having all the say in the relationship could be true without questioning. And until my sister-in-law starts to question her position in her marriage, does she begin to change it? Mm -hmm. She doesn't question his position. She questions her own. And it's the same thing for me is like, I'm not questioning a white person's position in white power. I'm questioning my position. And so like, for a white person to ask me to, to understand where they are, it's like, well, well, how do you not know? Like, that's like you asking me, you know, can you tell me where you live? And it's like, you, if, you, if you don't know where you live, then it's like, you, I, like, I don't know what to tell you. And that's, you know, more of what am I writing? I'm an essay, you know, that's why I really love that, that word and that form is because it's the one form to me um, that allows the space to fail and I think as a person of color, um, 
not even as a person of color, I think that when you are not in power and when you don't get to decide what failure looks like, what success looks like arbitrarily, you're going to fail more than you're going to succeed. And you need that space to feel like that's okay. And I feel like a lot of times when you don't aren't in the position to make failure okay, you feel like you can't fail. Thus, you don't ask questions, right? Because you don't want to look stupid. You don't want to look like you don't know. And so you you posit, you pointificate things, you collapse meanings, you um, make very, uh, and when I say you, I really mean me. Um, that essay was me, tr the, like the first essay, which I'm trying to work away from perpetuating lies. Mm -hmm. um, and really start to try to begin to tell the truth about the lies that were told to me. And I think that's sort of the best way to describe how I write is that I have to really sit with everything that's been told to me and see, well, what was it about this? That even though on the surface, it seemed like it was lying, there was something true going on beneath it. Like, so in all those interactions with my white friends, what was really going on beneath all that questioning was they wanted ownership without responsibility. They wanted to be able to say that they had a black friend, but not pay for what having a black friend really meant. And so it was like, no, I wanted to be able to say I owned a black friend, that my relationship with this was one which I was always in power. And so that's me asking you to give me control of you is a lot more uh, progressive than me just taking it. But one thing that you can respect is like, at least you're showing me who you are. But you want me to, you know, hide that from you so you don't have to see who you are and you want me to do. And it's like it's this is literally like when you look at what slavery was and besides just a political and financial institution, it was one in which the people who were doing the dirty work were always washing the hands of those who felt like no nothing dirty was being done. It wasn't me like that's everyone's response to slavery was, well, I wasn't a part of it. And it's like that's not that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right. Like, right. You know, and right. so with that, with that whole essay is like, I'm not trying to lay blame at anyone's feet. I'm saying that this is what we're dealing with. This is at everybody's feet. So who, like, if the house is on fire, what does it matter now that of who burned it down? Like, everyone can deny it, but it doesn't deny the flame that's going up, right? So my thing with these essays is like, I'm not trying to lay blame. I'm not trying to say that I, that I know who's at fault. I'm trying to say that this is what everyone's dealing with. And it's just like, that's really it. Like, I don't even, I don't like the essay just ends with like my sister divorcing her husband. That answers nothing. Like that's a very contingent answer. She like, you don't know if she ends up getting back with him later. You don't know like what, like you don't know my relationship, how that word has changed, but that's what essays allow. Like they, they allow the open ended. They allow the possibility. They allow some people relapse. Like it, it, it's no more uh, Disney endings, which <laughs> right. is what when I first you know read like Baldwin in a sense was always giving these definitive closings that made people feel like okay, like if I do this, this will happen. And it's like I don't even know what I don't know what's gonna happen. I just know my sister divorced her husband. Like <laughs> like oh, yeah. that was the most definite thing that happened. Like she divorced her husband. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying about the essay form. To me, it's always about at continuing to ask questions and attempting to answer them. And sometimes you never arrive at an answer. It just mm -hmm. continues the question for the next essay. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, with all of the work that you have, are you working on compiling a book or anything like that? What are you? What are your current writing I'm, projects? Yeah, this is this is I have this 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 uh, essay is the opening essay to a collection of essays that I'm been working on for a while. Um, I got a hundred pages of it. It's called Concealed Weapons, and it's basically about literally what I'm telling you, like yeah. just un- like sitting writing out those lies to see see what's true. And I think with a lot of families, especially, I don't, I don't know about other countries and I can't speak to, so I'm not going to go. Whereas here, I know that in America, um, our, our reality is predicated on a lot. Like we're literally told like the American dream is what we're, we're like, we're taught to pursue a dream, like not to pursue a reality, but to pursue a dream. And so I think with that, there's so many, you're getting told more lies than truth. And what happens when those truths, when those lies are the truth for you? And like, it looks differently on everybody. But I think what makes people American is having to wrestle with that conundrum of regardless of what your life is showing you, you're deciding to look elsewhere. Like, oh, like, I know I'm poor now, but 20, I'm going to be the richest. It's like, that's fine. But let's look and accept your, let's look and accept your position now. So these essays are like it's a hundred pages in of me really figuring out my place in the world where um it's so easy to try to tell myself where I wanna belong, where I should belong, but like well where do you actually belong? Mm-hmm. And how do you describe something that's not static, that's not always in the same place. So like I could be very like and this is what I've learned in my writing, like I could be very progressive when it comes to the way I see race and very like retrograde when it comes to the way I understand women. And this is the same person. So where my footing is here is not where my footing is there. And we, you know, I've seen in the narrative of America, like we've taken somebody like if they're bad, they're bad in all the ways that the person can be like we two dimensionalized people. And I'm starting to see that it's not even three dimensions. There's too many dimensions. And it's like, all right, but where does that put me? And I think that because of that, like, this is why I feel like the essay answers that. Like I've had the difficulty of writing this is is resisting. And when we talk about white editors and how they play into this is that I've had several essays be attempted, several white, several editors that I've had in, in workshops that I've gone through when there's been majority white people have turned, try to turn attempt into memoir. Mm. Sure. And like, there has to be a narrative arc to this. Right. Like this, 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 this starting point and this arri- this eventual arrival, like this closure that sort of makes what I don't want to feel comfortable, what makes me uncomfortable, can you bring this to an end? Like, how does this, does this end with me getting my MFA and going on to like, that's, is there a happy ending? And it's like, no, there's no happy ending oh. because there's necessarily no sad beginning. It's just life. Right. And. I feel like with memoir, there's always like we want to be able to have somebody tell us how to live our lives for us. And I don't even mem- like I didn't I didn't want to do that. But, you know, I was watching how my edited my edit essays were getting categorized by editors. I was watching how certain things like the whole part where I break down my relationship with the N word or whatever. You know, somebody has suggested, you know, several people like a lot of people suggested, well, you know, you should put in. Uh, you should explain like the history of the of of the word. I'm like, why? Like, 
Like that's that like that has no place in his essay. No. Because I feel like it would give people and then it's like what type of people are we talking about? Because if you live in this country, I feel like you know that word. You like you you're privy to the certain conversation. Yeah. So what I'm trying to have is my particular conversation. But what I was seeing was it was once again that American thing of sell us the dream. Like if we feel like you know enough, I feel like you have the answer. And then with that, this is how like capital happens. And like I've been in conversations to sell uh, the book and talks of getting representation for it. And, you know, the immediate thing, which I think not enough happens with writing is the commerce that controls what stories are valuable, which ones are publishable. And with that, it comes, well, what's the market? Where do you see this existing? And the hardest part for me is like, I know what this book isn't. And I know what this book is. And because I know what this book is, I know that it's going to take longer to be sold because it's like, it's not something that can be sold to people. Yeah. Right. Like this is not going to be the book that if you read this, your life will change. I don't, I can't promise that, nor am I concerned with perpetuating the lie. Yeah. And it's not to say that this book doesn't have a place, but I feel like that's going to take a longer time to figure out. And I feel like because of where publishing is with what it wants from people of color is that it wants answers, especially in this Trump era where it's like, where do we go now? And it's looking for like what's going to what's what the market is doing is looking for answers. And it's like when you're questioning in a society that's giving you answers, right? Like you don't sell toothpaste by saying what solves bad breath and you leave that hanging. No, you solve it by saying, you know what solves bad breath? toothpaste and people go <laughs> yes and then that's the way you pose you know your work and because my work is not rhetorical it's an open conversation it's like there's a lot of things i understand that has to change around the industry and what it expects from writers especially writers of color for like a work like that to be appreciated and it's not yeah. to, and it's not to say that i've done all the work i need to do i'm still writing it but it's like, I also see what's been published. I'm like on like a board where I'm seeing the books that are getting sent to me. And I'm like, but this is what's getting published. So it's not a matter of it's not being good enough. It's like once, once again, like coming back to those lies that those truths that exist under, underneath, which then sort of articulate itself as lies to your ears of saying, well, you know, this needs more work or that needs more work. I need to see more. And it's like, you know, I've been told by several agents like, oh, you know, we need to see more of your, your, you need to see more. I've sent, sent them a hundred pages. Then I'm learning from friends. Like some people need to see as much as 20 pages is a lot. And so I'm like, Oh, like, but you're not telling me the truth that you just don't feel like this is doing whatever. You're going to tell me this lie of like, I'm not doing enough. Well, as I want to I wanna yeah. just commend you and tell you to keep doing what you're doing because you know, as an editor of a literary magazine where I'm reading all sorts of stuff, one of the things that, I get really tired of is the spoon feeding that you're talking about that editors are asking for. Like, I don't want to be spoon fed as a reader or as an editor. And I'm forever like cutting the endings of pieces that are like trying to wrap things up in a pretty bow. I, that just, because as you were saying, that's not life. That's not real life. Real life is much more complex and complicated than that. And we can't always have the happy ending or the pretty bow. And I see so many writers trying to do that in their essays. And it just doesn't work because you come to the end and you're like, oh, of course they like 
finally got back together and got married and have this beautiful life. Like, no, actually, probably that's not what happened. And that's not what I want as a reader or as an editor. So, Yadon, I mean, just fight the good fight. I mean, that sounds so stupid and cliche, but you know what I mean by it. Like, keep doing the work that you're doing. And um, I'm, I'm really proud to know you for hearing about your writing journey. Thank you. Um, I, could I ask you a question? Yeah. What was it, uh, I think, that enabled you to want to take the Dorian essay? Like, what did you see in that essay that made you say, like, this is what you wanted? There were a couple things. Um, first of all, I really appreciated how you were addressing the issue of identity. You were mm-hmm. talking about... Um, And and you do some similar things in the essay you read for this episode where you're questioning your own identity and kind of reconciling or attempting to reconcile your African identity with your American identity. Mm -hmm. And you did it in a very subtle way by telling stories and showing us your experience rather than coming to some definitive conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, In the Dorian essay, I also really like how you handled the dialogue. I mean, in general, you write dialogue very well. And in the piece you read um, for this episode is another example of that. You have this back and forth. Um, you don't do a lot of the he said, she said stuff. and But the, the patter is easy to distinguish between the speakers and you don't get lost and you don't get confused. Um, mm-hmm. But in the Dorian essay, you had it formatted where the back and forth was like in two columns going down the page. Yeah. And so... I liked the play with the form and the visual of that on the page because it gave even more of a stark visual contrast between the characters and what they were saying and what they meant. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you're doing things that I haven't seen a lot of writers do. And that's what I like as an editor, regardless of color, honestly. Yeah, I mean, and that's, but that's fine, right? Like, that's because, you know, for me, it's like, sometimes we, how can I say this? We over-romanticize what it means to be a pioneer or a trailblazer, right? Because it's like, when you think about it, right? When you make a new town, there's not a town that exists, right? So if you are the one kind of creating this new lane, you're the one who's chopping the trees down, getting bit by mosquitoes, catching stuff, getting sick, blah, blah, blah. It's those people who come after who get to just like kind of live off of it that it like people appreciate it. But the person who's like kind of charting this, like, you know, approaching writing or challenging this this space that doesn't exist before. Like I'm, I've understood my position insofar as knowing like a lot of the things I'm writing, although I, I know it's like dope writing is like because it's doing stuff that other people aren't doing. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be immediately celebrated. Right. Right. Like, when you really study like the books that have changed writing, like don't study, I don't study the impact now. Like, no, look at what it was like when Moby Dick first came out, no one wanted to touch that book with a 10 foot pole, right? Like every, like Dorner Hurston died like penniless. Like it took like generations and years. other things had to happen around like that creation for it to really be celebrated the way it needed to be. And so sometimes, you know, that's why like I do so much, you know, what you know, what they what we've called in the literary world, literary citizenship, because you start to see that your work does not exist in a vacuum. And I think that as writers, the lie we tell ourselves is that we 
you know, our writing is enough. And it's like, I don't feel like it's enough. I feel like that's one way we contribute. Like another way is like being like editor, going to events, you know, supporting other writers, celebrating other writers, because it's like your writing, if you don't understand like these other writers, or you don't, you've never read these, these, these other books, if you've never watched this, if you never lived that, you won't ever understand this book, right? Right. And I think the mistake is, is like coming back to the whole thing of the education process that I've had and the editing process is like, if you have so many editors who are in high power positions in these publishing houses and, you know, their reference points are like only a Baldwin and they don't like have a Hilton Alls and they've never heard of Margot Jefferson and they've like, and not only that they've never heard of these people, but they also feel like they don't have to hear of these people. Then it's like, they can easily tell you that this book that you're giving them that's really valuable is like, well, I don't have any way to understand this. Thus, it's not understandable. The reason why I asked the question about the Dorian essay, because I've submitted that essay to several other places and nothing changed about the approach. I've never changed the essay from the time that I submitted to the time I submitted to you. So it's always interesting when someone says yes, as opposed to why someone says no. And it's not to say like the essay, like it belongs everywhere. But when people tell me it doesn't belong, I'm always interested in why people feel like it doesn't. And the one criticism I've gotten from the essay is that what they wanted that essay to be was an answer. They wanted to know, right. well, why is it that black people? And I'm like, whoa, wait, time out. Like this essay is about this particular, my relationship with this girl. And it's very like, to, to, like, and so it's just like, you want beneath all the dialogue, right? And that's what you say, like, when I have the conversation in Dorian that come up between the, the mother and her sister about her two daughters, like, yeah, the dialogue is saying one thing, but beneath all of that is this very complicated yep. system of power that yep. you can't really understand unless you're from the cult. Like you have to really be a part of it. Right. And so when you don't appreciate all that work, it doesn't look like work to you. Right. It looks like, oh, you just want to write. And it's like, no, this is an important piece for the, because it's not doing the thing you want it to do. And I think that that's how my writing has gotten better is when it's like, I'm not going to go the place, not even where I'm expected to go, but where I want to go because it makes it that much easier for me to continue to lie to myself. Mm -hmm. Like the first part of that essay that I wrote that I opened with the transatlantic, it ended where I read it because I could not imagine that essay going any further than what it had. But it was also because I hadn't read an important book that came into my life called The Women by Hilton Alls that was about investigating the lives of the women, investigating the lives of, of women who, you know, bring meaning to your life and investigating their lives on their own terms. Like when I first read that essay, I never thought to ask my sister how she learned French. Like she was 17 when she got married. One day she didn't speak French and the next day she sounded like she was like she could have came with her own subtitles. Like that's how... <laughs> And when you're writing from your own perspective, you're not thinking about like how things are happening. You're just like, this happened and this happened. But when I read that book and he sort of was, you know, showed like when you don't investigate other lives, you're also doing a disservice to your own. I was like, oh, so I started asking her things. And really the whole premise for how I'm even able to structure that second half of that essay when I'm talking to my white friends about language came from me understanding what really was going on between her and her husband. Because mm -hmm. even though I like parallel the relationship 
between my relationship that I was having with white people to hers, it was her relationship with her husband that informed what was really going on between me and my white friends. And so it was like, if you don't understand my sister, if I don't understand my sister, then I can't understand myself. And so my writing has become in a lot of ways a lot less selfless, which is why like a lot of these essays, I'm not even the main person. Like Dorian, that is, that's why the essay is named after her. That's her essay. Yeah. But it helps me But she me taught you my... something. She taught you yeah. something about yourself. And that, yeah. and that subtlety in the writing, I think, is what I liked about it. And I like about your writing in general is the subtlety. Like you're using these stories of observing the world, but showing the reader how you're better understanding yourself as a result. And that, I think, yeah. is the power of nonfiction because it's yeah. not about the answer. It's just about a new understanding. Right. And how hard is that for you as an editor, finding those stories and putting oh them out? Oh, my gosh. It's so hard. You have no idea. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I exactly have the idea. And that's why, like, you know, I look like how, in theory, like how much better off would you be, like, if you look, if you produce essays with answers, right? right? Like how many people would come to your to your journal Right. Right. For the answer. But it's like, I'm not about to buy more questions. Like, <laughs> people like, are, like, I'm not about to donate to something that just like, none of these things answer anything for me. Right. Right. Whereas right, right. like, look at the think piece uh, economy that we're in and all they are answers. And they're not even very good ones, but those are the pieces that sell. Those are the right. pieces that go viral. Those are the pieces that like you, re- you read feverishly for 15 minutes and then you forget the next 30. And for me, that's like, I'm not, you know, I, I don't live a disposable life, so I'm not going to write things that can be discarded so easily. Like, I want things to sit on you. I want, like, those stories to feel like they're a part of you because they, like, they are me. Like, there is no me without Dorian's and my mother's. And, and like, this is particularly why, like, I can't give you answers because I don't have them. And to, to have them is to under, undermine the people who have taught me that I don't have them. Mm-hmm. Because before asking my sister how she learned French and hearing that story, I thought I knew what happened in her, her marriage, which is why that essay ends without everything else. Before I really understand what happened to women on a day-to-day basis, I really didn't understand what was happening to my father. That because, you know, he's a man that was born in the 60s who, like, you know, was in the Marines. So we're talking about machismo culture. And then this is a man who has to now, you know, sit behind his woman and she's in power and if he had been taught a different way to understand his manhood maybe he would have been able to have something that would resist that but he doesn't right so it's like to understand my father's position is to understand my mother's position like there is no just isolating somebody and answering something it's like questioning that man's role and then understanding like oh like this is why he's really trapped Right. Is because his masculinity is dependent on her femininity, which exists a certain way. But it's only true in the context because the one thing I wanted to show in that essay, too, is my mother never really appears on the page. Mm -hmm. She's backdrop. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, you know, she never says that my father's not a man. It's everything he's telling himself. But it's also a system that also understands what men understand of themselves to know this is how you break a man down. And any man who's a man is not going to allow that to happen. So what happens is he leaves that or violence. And when the violence didn't work, it's like, I have no power here. So what is my role here? And it's like, you have you, you're, you're a husband, you're a father, that's your role. But when you don't have the language for what you don't have the, you don't have what that really means. 
is like how do you you survive in that? And that's like why like the the collection the collection of essays is called Concealed Weapons is because it's like so many things we have in our possession, you know, they are they are as much a threat as they are like they they bring as much harm as they help. And if you don't know when they're doing either, it's like you are liable to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's you know everything that my writing has taught me. Well, I can't wait to see that collection in print. I know it'll happen someday, so keep working at it. Um, Thank and, you. And you and keep doing what you're doing. Thank and you. Keep, you and same thing for you, because like I said, we, we need people who, um, and I had no problem, you know, giving, you know, that essay uh, that went to you. I have no problem giving essays to people who believe in what the essay is doing. As opposed to like, you know, and a lot of a lot of more writers are getting angry about this, but it's like the price we pay for freedom is priceless. Like, like you can't put a price on freedom. And so when, you know, as you know, when I as a writer make a decision to get more money for an essay, but then risk losing my headline, risk losing the title or risk changing the ending, it's like, what am I really giving up? And right. so you do need people like you and people in the industry who understand what the bigger picture is and are willing to commit themselves to the ultimate message of what people or what writers are really trying to write. And so without people like you, like, you know, that essay stays where it is, right? Like how many great books not like haven't been written, but how many great books aren't being published because right. they're not doing what people want them to do. Like they're right. not allowing themselves to be controlled. And that's what's beautiful when we get books that don't do, that happen to make them what their way to the printing press, just people's bookshelves, because those books, for so many reasons, should not exist, and yet they do. Yeah. And so somebody like you who finds stories and makes sure that these stories exist, you're like, like you're doing just as much work as me, and I you know, commend you as well. Ah, thank you. Well, I want to hear a little bit about your own personal, you mentioned, you made brief mention of um, the literary citizenship. So... Talk yeah. a little bit about, like, geez, Yadon, everything you do besides writing. You know, you've got your literary swag, your literary book club, your um, now there's a new platform, your YouTube series. So yeah. talk a little bit about all that stuff. Well, no, I mean, what I realized, like, um, coming into the MFA program, like, you know, you, I thought it was just about writing. Like, I thought that writing and literature was just about what you put on the page. And then the more I started to see, like, no, like, well, if, if it was thinking that I was special, it was that American exceptionalism that does not only exist in the White House or on Wall Street, but exists in everyday life. And I feel like every writer comes in with this idea that they're going to write a book that doesn't exist already. Mm-hmm. And that's why you read, because you read. And what's scary is that your book exists in so many different forms already. It's how do you really contribute to this world that you're a part of? Because the thing you tell you, I think I told myself was I'm writing something that doesn't exist. And, but it's like, no, Hilton, James, Maya, like, you know, like, you know, like Cormac, like there's so many people who, who are doing things I'm doing. So it's like, what am I really bringing to the world? And so that's what the question of literary citizenship is. And it's like, well, what have I never seen this world really have? And not just on the page, but it's like, why aren't people reading these books? These books are phenomenal. Like, The Women came out in 1996. I was six years old. I didn't discover that book until I was 24. We're talking about an 18-year lapse. Like, how much could I have possibly been different 
or arrived at certain truths earlier if these book if there was a system in place to make sure these books reach the people that they need to reach. And so thus I come up with a show where I interview writers and talk to them about the books they need they, they that influence them because you don't know who's gonna watch that and then who that's gonna influence. Like that's the reason why like, you know, I celebrate writers, publishers, editors, agents. Like, you know, the main thing when I do the literary swag interviews when I'm asking people their favorite three writers and stuff is the immediate thing is they want to kind of remove themselves. Like, oh, I'm not a writer. Like, I'm not a writer. And I think that even within the literary world, we, we only think of our contribution as what is tangible. Like, if I don't have a book in the world, that, that, that means I have no place in this world. And so what I wanted to show with the literary swag thing, like, here I am with no book, but yet, like, I'm the VP of awards and membership at the National Book Critics Circle. Like, I have, like, you know, relationships with people who won Pulitzers, and national book awards and whatever. And I have none of those contrib. I, I've contributed quote unquote nothing, but yet I have everything that somebody who contributes so much more don't have. You know, I have a lot of friends who go, you know, it took me six years to build a relationship with this person and you know them in six months. How did it happen? It's like, because what I see is that what I'm, what I want to bring is something that I see that person really needs. And to bring something that a person really needs is to say, is to really show that you're paying attention and it's to show that you actually want to help. Right. And so my thing is like, I really see myself and my role is like, I understand this is, and this is, I think if this interview has to like end soon, the thing I've understood for myself, once I got out of the illusion that I was going to write the next big book was the thing I am, I've been willing to accept from my life is I've told myself this several times that the biggest, the biggest thing I'm going to do for writing is not what I write, but what I do. And that's how I've, and so it, this is why I have no problem celebrating other writers work because it's like, if I saw myself as only a writer, I would be intimidated by anything that happened on the page. But because I understand that writing is so much bigger than the books that we publish and that we read, but it's about how we live our lives and how we move through them. It's like, how can I call myself a literary, um, I'm a literary or, or a writer if I'm not celebrating other writers, if I'm not making sure that to know me is to know 20 other writers, that to know, like, you know, that an essay can get published in your thing and then I can tell you no for a podcast. Like, writing is about everything we do with everybody. Like, I, I, I talk to every, you know, I take meetings with people um, from different publishing houses and, I, you know, we share information all the time and I've never tried to turn that into a deal for myself because it's like, no, you need this information because that makes something better for a writer who, had we not had this conversation, you probably wouldn't see. Yeah. And so that's to me what the like what literary like culture is. It's about how do we make this better for each other? Yeah. And I see myself as a vestibule, like not like a holding ground. Like I'm not a, like a prison. Like I'm not trying to keep all the greatness for myself. Like, no, I really want more people to know about this. Like I, I go to bookstores and I say this all the time, books on the shelves are a crime. Like these books should be in someone's houses, not in the store. Like that's how I really feel. And so my thing is how do I get these books into people's hands where they're actually mattering in the ways that need to matter? Yeah. So, so where that's can everything people, I'm doing. Where can people find out about all of the stuff that you're doing? What's the best um, place to go online? Best place is to follow me at, at Yadon on Instagram, at Yadon Israel on Twitter. Um, 
the the platform atlet platform and we've we've the the the, the most recent interview and i highlight like the emphasis was with uh the pulitzer prize winner for poetry this year of tyan bajess for olio and there's a clip of him showing that he did this 3d poem that like folds out and he did it in such a way with the whole poem reads in any direction so every line goes across this video i posted the clip the video is currently almost like coming like at eight thousand views wow. right now the show itself was meant to be able to showcase the brilliance of writers like that now if a show like that doesn't exist which is like writers do not have visual shows to see these things that there's no eight thousand views that allows people to see that people are busting their ass to create things that ultimately without things like this that exist go unread right mm -hmm. and so to me it's like you know when they you know that great philosophy of like when a tree falls and no one's there to hear it doesn't make a sound the answer is yes but the crime is no one was there to hear it my thing is i'm trying to get as many people in the forest so that when that tree falls you hear it because that is really what the other half of like being a trailblazer is like i want you to see the trail being blazed in front of you so that you appreciate you appreciate it and that you know you keep it going for the next generation or the next person right so yeah that's pretty much everything I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'm just really inspired by everything that you're doing. So thanks for coming on and telling us all about what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And let me know when this go up so I can share with, with, with everybody, you know, put everybody on. I will for sure. All right. That was Yadon Israel. Visit him online at yadonisrael.com. Follow him on Instagram at Yadon. Follow his other projects at Literary Swag Book Club and Lit Platform. Of course, all of those links as well as the spelling of Yudon's name, etc. so that you can find him and check out all of his work are in the show notes for today's episode, which you can find at moretothestorypodcast.com. Don't forget to check out my audio course, CNF 101, a six-week email course. You get an email every week for six weeks when you sign up. The email includes the lesson audio that you can download, listen to at your own pace, listen to it as often as you want, reading material, summary of the lesson, as well as homework for the week, access to a private Facebook group where you can interact with me and other course participants, and it's a great way to just become more familiar with the genre, explore the options for writing, reading, and publishing in creative nonfiction. Check it out online at janamarlise.com slash cnf101course. I hope you'll join me. I would love nothing more to the, than to support you in your writing journey of telling true stories. Next time on More to the Story, I talk with Dorian Fox about how teaching writing often keeps us on our toes and accountable to our own creative work. To subscribe to this podcast, go to iTunes.com slash More to the Story. And while you're there, leave a review. I love feedback. I love hearing from you. And it helps with the ratings. More to the Story is produced out of my home office in Sacramento, California, with technical and audio support from TJ Santoro. 
Special thanks to my husband, Jeremy Marin, who wrote and performed the theme song. You can visit us online at moretothestorypodcast.com, follow Under the Gumtree on Twitter and Instagram at undergumtree. I'm Jana Marlise Marin, just Jana on Twitter, Jana Marlise everywhere else. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of More to the Story. Tell me a story, tell me truth, I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. Sitting on the balcony, drinking a bar wine, talking about the way that we to live our lives the words in the books man they're nothing but lies i look into your eyes and you look into mine you say tell me a story tell me true i want to know what happened to you the stars are all out and the night is so blue tell me I'll tell them.